another season of Unraveling Science, the podcast where I chat to leading scientific researchers about the stories that have not only shaped the science, but also the scientist. This season, we have so much to cover from dermatology to astronomy, nutrition to immunology, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted again to be sponsored by the wonderful Irish company, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of the Thermo Fisher Scientific Group, and you can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. I'm so grateful to them for continuing to sponsor this podcast. Professor Kate Fitzgerald, Professor of Medicine and Director of the Programme in Innate Immunity at the University of Massachusetts, is my guest on the podcast today. So Kate's research is focused on understanding the molecular basis of host defence and the inflammatory process. And as one of the top 1% most highly cited authors in her field, Kate's list of awards is exhaustive, including the 2015 SFI St. Patrick's Day Science Medal, the Milliston Award for Excellence in Interferon and Cytokine Research. And most recently, she has been elected to both the Royal Irish Academy and the prestigious U.S. National Academy of Sciences. So firstly, Kate, congratulations on the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. It's a huge deal. And um, in, in light of that, I am so grateful that you have given me the time today to come on the podcast. So, so thanks so much for coming on. Good morning or whatever time it is there. Um, yeah, thank you very much, Megan. It's really nice to get a chance to chat with you. Yeah, it was a really nice bit of news there a couple of weeks ago yeah kind of you know I knew I was nominated but you know typically typically it can take years if at all right to ever be elected so yeah it was a very pleasant surprise where I'm sure were your family back at home very excited they so once I told them what it was they <laughs> they were excited yeah yeah no there was a lot of you know it, it was it was great I heard you know from friends and colleagues you know all over the world yeah it's been kind of a couple of weeks of tons of emails and yeah lots of celebrations it was it was really great well I mean what better time I suppose to have a celebration I think people are really excited to celebrate things now nowadays with yeah. COVID and everything. <laughs> It's good to have some good news all of a sudden, you know. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I suppose, Kate, I want to kind of go back and and you grew up in Waterford. So talk to me about that and what childhood was like and was kind of a, an innate curiosity in science, um, to excuse the pun there. Was that kind of, you know, present from early on or did that come a little later on? So, yeah, I grew up in Watford. I'm one of six kids. I My sister is a, you know, geologist. So there's a little bit of science in the family. But yeah, I would have been sort of the first to pursue a science career. You know, I, I would say as a child, I definitely, you know, I, like I, I used to basically be sort of a teacher, you know, playing, being a teacher. I had this big blackboard out in the front and all the little kids on the street, I remember distinctly I think I was kind of a bit of a bossy teacher so there was definitely a teaching thing from early on and I just I loved science in school like uh, even in like for my leaving cert I actually chose to do chemistry biology and physics and I remember distinctly at the time the career guidance you know person I, I went to school in the Ursuline in Watford sort of said oh you know are you not sort of putting you know all your eggs in one basket what if you don't like science you know you're sort of maybe it's good to pick some other subjects just so you're not you know digging yourself into that kind of trench but um yeah I I suppose I must have been sure about that so uh, you know so that's what I did for my leave 
doing search. And I actually really wanted to do medicine. So that's what I was planning to do, like up until almost up until the leaving cert and getting results. You know, I had I think my plan was was medicine. And then the summer before, I think I left the Earthline. So did my leaving cert. I spent a summer in a, in the biochemistry lab in the local hospital in Arkeen. And I just got hooked. Yeah, I really loved that. Like I, I was doing, you know, nothing super fancy, but there was just something about that experience that kind of made me change my mind. And I decided, OK, I'm going to do science instead of medicine. So so that's what I did. Yeah, I went to UCC. Um, I actually started off doing chemistry and I, I kind of didn't love chemistry from the beginning. I had loved it in, in for Leaving Cert, but I just didn't love that. So I switched to biochemistry and then, yeah, the rest is sort of history. So I finished, yeah, finished my degree and then really loved biochemistry, like just, you know, figuring things out. I definitely, you know, I definitely had a curiosity and interest in kind of the lab side of things and just, you know, kind of, I suppose, figuring out how things work. I remember my first research experience, you know, in UCC, I was again, you know, kind of reinforced that curiosity and interest in science. Yeah. So that was that was sort of the path to that point and kind of the decision making to stick to science. And when you did that summer placement, was that like just to get a summer job or was that with the view of of learning more about like a med lab or what, why did you decide to take on that summer placement? Yeah, pr- probably a bit of both, you know, definitely wanted a summer job, right? The final year of secondary school. So a combination of that, but definitely just the opportunity to get exposure to what life in a lab was like, because, I, you know, I was probably trying to figure out, you know, sort of determine if that's something I really did want to do. So, yeah. Yeah, no, no it was obviously a good experience and um, an important, you know, turning point, because I think it really made me switch from medicine. And at the time, you know, I, I guess at the time I wasn't really aware that there was, you know, an MD kind of PhD type career. You know, I didn't really know what that would have been like. You know, I didn't come from a family of physicians or a family of scientists that had gone down this career path. So, you know, looking back on it now, I, I you know, in some ways I wish I had done medicine, but being able to still pursue research because I'd like to understand better the diseases. You know, as a scientist, you can read and educate yourself on the disease. But I think seeing patients and treating patients, I think, would give you a different kind of angle on you know, the science then that you do in the lab. So, you know, and now I'm in a department of medicine, right? It's a very sort of clinically oriented research environment. And um, I think there would be value in having had, you know, a medical training. But I think even just the value of that kind of um, collaboration between a clinical team and a scientific team, it can't be understated, you know, and and the power of translational research for both the scientists and the patient. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, you know, today, right, I'm I'm working in a medical school in a department of medicine, but but my research is still very much kind of basic fundamental science, you know, trying to understand pathways and how they work. But there's clear sort of translation to disease and, you know, meeting patients who have the diseases or, you know, 
that that's I think it's a different kind of motivator to to sort of go back to the lab and, and really try and figure things out. Like I think when you when you're connected more to the disease itself, it's 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 inspiring, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and and so take me back to, you know, final year of UCC. What made you then want to pursue a PhD and 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 then move up to, to the big smoke of Dublin and decide to, yeah, to relocate yeah. up there? Uh, no. So I loved I loved UCC and. You know, it was a fantastic experience, you know, as undergrad, lots of friends. You know, I I suppose I knew I just wanted to do more research. You know, you don't get exposed to a ton of research in your undergrad. You know, there's the kind of more formal labs and stuff. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It seemed like an obvious thing. I didn't I don't think I even really thought about it. It just seemed like, of course, I'm going to do a Ph.D. You know, the question was where and, you know, with whom. So back then. And I think I, I applied to a couple of places in the UK and I remember going, you know, I went for a couple of days and interviewed. I can't even remember all the places now. St. Mary's, I think. I think I might have interviewed at UCL. And then my last interview was back in Ireland with Luke O'Neill. So he was the only person I, you know, interviewed with in Ireland. And I didn't actually know really Luke. Like Luke was not the famous person that he is today, <laughs> right? He, you know, even, even probably teenagers know of Luke. O'Neill these days in Ireland you know back then he had just finished his own PhD in London and had moved back to Trinity he was probably back a couple of years kind of getting his own lab going and I met him and oh yeah like just instantly I knew I definitely want to work in this lab like Luke you know even back then right before the fame and all of his own accomplishments he was just so excited about science like you could feel it it was sort Mm -hmm. of you know there was a magnetic draw to that and I was interested in the area he was studying you know it was inflammation there was you know so little known back then you know compared to what we know now about kind of how inflammation starts and is regulated and you know how the immune system kind of recognizes friends versus foes and you know kind of mounts the right responses it was all uncharted territory and you could sort of sense that from Luke it was just like okay this is at a tipping point where there's just so much to understand so yeah so I start you know I was like sign me up PhD <laughs> here yeah and did you find the PhD like tough or did you did you enjoy it over overall yeah I I enjoyed it overall but I think anyone who's gone through a PhD no matter where you are in the world no matter how great the lab is you know even no matter how great the project goes you know there's highs and lows in the course of that PhD I I distinctly remember like in the middle of my PhD I was trying to sort of I was trying a new technique. It just wasn't really working. And it felt like months and months where nothing worked. And, you know, I definitely hit a point where I thought, oh, golly, have I, you know, is this really how I should be spending my time? You know, I'm not cut out for this. But, you know, all the sort of I just I I definitely was not enjoying that phase of it. (laughs) But then, you know, things turned around and, you know, I got God, I, you know, I can barely even remember what it was now, but I got that technique to work and I moved on and, you know, the rest of the project went well. But um, Luke was a really incredible mentor. Like you would you would sort of go in and meet with Luke thinking, you know, I've nothing to show, nothing is working, you know, kind of down in the dumps about, you know, this is all crap and I'm, I just can't 
find anything useful here. But, he, you know, somehow he would kind of pick up some little nugget of a finding and then you'd come out of those meetings really inspired. So so he had an amazing ability to do that. Like I'll never, you know, I'll just never forget, particularly in those times when you're having a tougher time. And then the rest of my PhD was fantastic. Yeah. You know, he was his lab was really starting to take off. You know, the people who were in that lab were just fantastic. You know, Andrew Bowie and Marion Boland, you know, many of them still in science um, today in Ireland. It was a really tight knit group, um, very supportive. You know, we were kind of a team and um, we're, you know, we're all still close and friends to this day. So, yeah, it was it was a really fun time. And I know that you you did a, a postdoc with with Luke after, but then kind of soon after that, you you moved to the States. And what was your motivation behind that? Um, I kind of from what you've said about, you know, your PhD, the beginning of your PhD, you were looking to to move abroad even then at that early yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah. I think so back, definitely back then there was, it, it seemed clear that to be successful in this career, you know, you kind of had to go away, right? It didn't, you know, to the UK or to the States. I think just that experience you got from going away to a different lab, even if you, you know, ultimately you wanted to come back to Ireland, I think that was definitely kind of ingrained in me that, you know, if you want to really make a go of this that was the path to take so I it was interesting like around the so at the very end of my PhD Luke was actually on a sabbatical in Boston working for a company which was called Millennium Pharmaceuticals he was there I think he was there for about six months and I was fortunate to be able to go for about three months at that time so I actually spent three months at the very end of my PhD you know, working in this company in Boston. And that was just, you know, phenomenal experience. Like, you know, such a great opportunity. And and then my brother lived in Boston. So there was all these kind of Boston connections. So I had actually spent a lot of summers in Boston, you know, as a waitress or I was a lifeguard, you know, kind of not science jobs, just typical summer student abroad kind of jobs. Loved the Boston area. Obviously, I had my family there. And then I actually got a got offered a job at that company. So right after my PhD, I was actually going to you know go into industry. And that company at the time then merged with another. I think they they acquired another company, and there was a freeze kind of put on all the hires which was devastating. I remember at the time. So I actually went back to Ireland, back to Luke's lab and just started working on a new project that was at the start of the field of innate immunity, really, you know, innate immunity was kind of taken off as a discipline. Yeah. Then in the end, I never, you know, when that hiring freeze ended and I could have gone, you know, to that company, I was so kind of ingrained then in this new project and it was super exciting. So I stayed for about a year and a half in Luke's lab, kind of finished up that project that was you know one of the it was it was you know basically sort of focusing on one of the key kind of parts of the innate immune pathway discovered a new molecule and it was just such an exciting time to be you know in that field so yeah so then after that I still thought okay I definitely want to go to Boston like not to a company but you know to a a lab and do a postdoc which is the kind of typical route of you know what what people would do so I did that I you know spent a bit of time doing a bit of research you know, figuring out who's doing cool innate immunity work in Boston. 
interviewed at two or three different labs. And then I ultimately wanted to work with this guy called Douglas Gallenbach, who actually at the time was at Boston University, which is in Boston, but was moving to Worcester, which is, you know, Worcester is a smaller city, kind of about, you know, 45 minutes or so outside of Boston. Um, and I met Doug and really liked him. And, you know, again, he was starting to do some really exciting work in innate immunity. But because he was moving to Worcester to UMass, which is where I am now, I kind of thought, oh, I don't want to live, you know, 45 <laughs> minutes outside of Boston if I'm going to come to the States. You know, I want to live in Boston. Like that's where all the, you know, I, excitement and yeah, yeah like, you, you know, life is not, it was not just all about science, right? Like there was many other reasons to go to the Boston area. Um, but because I liked Doug so much and was just, again, kind of, you know, he had the same kind of infectious enthusiasm about science as Luke. I thought, okay, yeah, I'll give it a try. I'll still live in Boston and I'll, you know, drive out to UMass. And so that's what I did. Yeah. And you've been there ever since. <laughs> and I've been there ever since, which is kind of hard to believe. Yeah, I've been I've been at UMass now almost 20 years. Yeah. So my my it's crazy. Like my first day actually in the state. So I moved on September 10th. 2001 and then you know the next morning right was 9-11 it was it was yeah it was crazy like my I remember my boyfriend at the time who's now my husband was interviewing for a job at a company in Boston and you know I was waiting for him just kind of waiting outside I think I was sitting down by the river way near this place where he was interviewing and then just heard all this commotion like I just couldn't quite figure out what was going on and yeah it was very strange time you know to have your first day you know moving to a new country like it was when I look back on it it was kind of bonkers yeah I can only imagine like that your parents were probably like get home quick like you know (laughs) I know and um and like if I think if I you know, in some ways, if I hadn't gone the day before, you know, obviously it would have taken weeks or, or who knows what would have happened. Right. You know, yeah. there was, I think it was weeks and weeks before people would have flown again into the States. So, yeah, very strange, strange, strange times. Yeah. Wow. Despite that crazy start, you know, yeah, UMass has just been a really fantastic place. Like, you know, kind of this guy, Doug Gallenbach, who was the chief of infectious diseases. So he was an MD, you know, doing research, interested in kind of infection and the host response to infection and was really one of the kind of key leaders in that field. And, you know, I learned a ton from working with him. And then he was really building kind of a division or a department. You know, there was brand new building at UMass. We were one of the first sort of labs into that building. It was a real sort of sense of, you know, growth and excitement and recruiting and kind of building something from scratch in a way. So that was really kind of fun. Lots of people came around the same time and, you know, many of them are still there today. And, you know, your colleagues become your best friends, you know, they're, they're friends as well as sort of colleagues and collaborators. Yeah. UMass is a really special place. It's, it's very kind of collaborative. Um, You know, we built kind of a, group it's called the program in innate immunity where a lot of labs are interested in related things so it kind of makes it easier to do 
the day-to-day science, you know, there's a lot of people to talk to for my students and trainees. They just get a lot of exposure, you know, to other people doing related things. So, so it's been, yeah, it's been really great. Well, I suppose this could be a, you know, a good point in our conversation to bring in, you know, the whole area of innate immunity. Um, yeah. So, you know, I myself, am uh, very interested in the innate immune system. Uh, macrophages are my favorite cell type. Yeah. Um, and that's what Me I work too. on. <laughs> oh, great. So look at this. I, I, I seem to like attract all the macrophage biologists to this podcast. I wonder why. Um, but yeah, I'm just wondering, like, you know, maybe give us an overview of, you know, the immune system and, and, and why the innate immune system is so important and why you've chosen to research this. Yeah. So, you know, so the immune system has evolved, right, to to defend us from infection. You know, so the innate immune, there's the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. And the innate immune system is the kind of first line of defense. So, you know, the kind of responses that kick off within minutes to hours of encountering an infection or, you know, some sort of damage to, you know, to the body. So I became just captivated with this idea that, you know, this system exists to sort of distinguish, you know, friend from foe, right? On the one hand, you know, your body has to function, right? And it obviously we encounter pathogens, um, injury all the time. So the immune system has to kind of respond appropriately, but not over respond or under respond. So it's, you know, it's this sort of delicate balance of, you know, responding and, and kind of knowing how to respond in a way that's sort of commensurate with the threat, right? So if you have, you know, a little cut on your finger, you want to mount a, re- a response that keeps that response localized, you know, you don't have to bring out the big guns of the immune system to eliminate, you know, a, a little kind of cut on your finger. But but depending on how severe, let's say, an infection is, you know, the immune response is scaled appropriately. And the innate immune system really kind of dictates a lot of that. So it it's the first thing that tells the body, OK, there's an infection here. There's something foreign. This has to be eliminated, you know, and when when I started in the field, there was really nothing known about how those decisions are made. Like, how does the immune system respond to something dangerous, but avoid responding to harmless, you know, components of our own cells? And today, you know, that's kind of still what we work on. So for the first several years, we were focused on, you know, identifying receptors that sense pathogen products, you know, viruses, bacteria, how these responses get turned on and turned off. Um, And I would say over the last kind of probably 10 years or so, we've kind of turned probably more to understanding how these innate immune pathways are kind of contributing to diseases. So diseases where there's not an infection, but but many of the same sorts of responses are activated and typically overactivated or inappropriately activated. So we work a lot now on those kind of pathways, we're trying to understand those pathways, identify the players, you know, and then that can help you, you know, think about designing drugs to target those pathways. And, you know, those drugs may turn out to be treatments for, you know, a wide range of inflammatory diseases. So, so my research, you know, covers similar kind of ground to what Luke O'Neill 
um, and his group work on these days. So we're kind of all interested in defining these pathways better, understanding how they work, when they work in the immune system and when they go wrong and then figuring out ways to inactivate them so that we could, you know, improve, you know, heart disease or cancer or arthritis or an area that I'm really interested in is autoimmune diseases and auto-inflammatory diseases. So something like lupus, you know, as a, as a disease. Yeah. How can we kind of better understand these pathways so we can figure out how to tweak them and come up with new treatments? Really exciting area. Yeah. And I know that kind of one of the kind of major focuses and the major pathways that you do focus on are these nucleic acid sensing path- yeah. pathways. Yeah. So talk to me about about that, you know, for, for people who might be aware, like what is nucleic acid typically and how can the immune system sense that? And then what happens, I suppose, when it does sense Yeah, that? so nu- nucleic acids are sort of the building blocks of life. You know, every, li- every living creature has DNA and RNA, right? And the sort of dogma of biology is that, you know, your genes, which are comprised of DNA, you know, these long strands of DNA that kind of are, those are sort of the building blocks, right? That's the alphabet that that you read to make the proteins of the body. So that DNA is converted into RNA, and then that RNA is converted into the proteins, and then that's what builds our cells and our tissues. So our own cells are filled with DNA, but it's typically kind of in the nucleus or in the mitochondria. In a healthy, happy cell, there's never DNA in other in places other than those two places. So it's kind of compartmentalized. But a pathogen, let's say a virus, particularly a DNA virus, when that infects the body, it turns out that the main way the immune system senses the presence of that virus is by detecting its DNA. So in the case of a DNA virus, it's its DNA. In the case of an RNA virus, let's say a coronavirus, it's its RNA. So so that you know, allows the immune system to sense that virus, but it also poses this real challenge to the cell because DNA is kind of the same, whether it's a viral DNA or a DNA within your own cell. And therefore there's, you know, there's, there's a risk, right? That the mechanisms, the pathways that evolve to sense that incoming virus, you know, and, and defend us against the infection could kind of inadvertently somehow get activated by our own DNA. And it turns out that that's what happens in a lot of inflammatory diseases and particularly in autoimmune diseases where our own DNA or RNA kind of activates these innate immune receptors. And now you start to respond to your own it's kind of self, right? You're responding to nucleic acids from your own cells. And these are really potent pathways. Like they're great at getting rid of a virus infection. But if you have these pathways responding to self-DNA, then now you're going to be kind of having an inflammatory response to your own cells and tissues, right? And ultimately that will lead to damage to tissues and, you know, even destruction of organs. So, So it's a really delicate balance you know you're kind of taking advantage of the exquisite sensitivity of these pathways for infection but the flip side is you know the immune system can just be inadvertently sensing self-dna 
And there's lots of conditions where self-DNA accumulates in the body. You know, if you have cells that are dying, they're releasing that DNA and RNA into the extracellular sort of environment. And now that can trigger some of these nucleic acid sensors. I work on some pathways that are actually within the cytosol or even the nucleus of cells. And there's, it's just super interesting to, to kind of define, you know, almost how do we not always respond to our own nucleic acids? Like it's, it's that delicate balance. You know, there's so many mechanisms that prevent that from happening. So that's why most of us are healthy, right? We don't have an autoimmune disease, but in a lot of people that kind of, um, you know, balance is shifted and somehow people start responding to nucleic acids that they ordinarily should not. So I, I find that just super fascinating. Because yeah, that's what I was going to say to you was that it is actually fascinating when you think of that it could just be as simple as nucleic acid in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, you no, know. it's location. It's So that it turns out that that's really the key. So, you know, cells can be stressed, for example, they can have mitochondrial DNA that would normally be sequestered in the mitochondria, it would never encounter these receptors in the cytosol. But when these cells are stressed, they start to release that DNA into the cytosol. And now that activates inflammation as a result of, you know, some kind of stress signal. And typically in a normal, healthy person, that would never happen, but it starts to happen in some conditions. Um, Other examples are, you know, when cells are dividing, right? All that nuclear DNA, you know, how do you prevent that from engaging sensory in the cytosol and again there's kind of exquisite mechanisms to prevent that from happening normally so normally you know the two never meet the dna and the sensors just don't interact but there are conditions and you know clearly examples where that kind of breakdown of that you know strict compartmentalization is lost and you start to respond to your own nucleic acids and you know that can have devastating consequences on the body and then we we work particularly over the last several years we've been working on kind of new diseases these are rare diseases but they're actually genetic diseases that are caused by mutations in either enzymes that normally clear DNA out of the cell. So if DNA ends up in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, these kind of waste disposal systems have evolved to kind of get rid of that. So, you know, typically, even if if something went wrong and DNA got into the cytosol, these enzymes clear it out. Mm. But there's a human disease, it's called a Cardi-Goutier syndrome that actually is caused by a mutation in an enzyme called TREX1. And that enzyme typically would clear out that DNA. So it would never accumulate and would never activate these sensors. But because it's mutated in people, um, in kids in particular, then you start to accrue DNA in places where it normally shouldn't be. And then you start activating these pathways and driving nasty cytokine responses. And, you know, these patients have really debilitating diseases, you know, terrible. And because, you know, say, for example, with that particular um, disease, because it's a genetic mutation, would something like gene therapy be um, beneficial or what kind of other mechanisms would your lab, say, be uh, investigating? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. I think gene therapy could be one approach, right? You could imagine you 
replace that enzyme um, in people and particularly in kids. So, so, you know, because these are such awful responses, you know, once they start to happen, you know, it's children, right. And typically those children don't live, you know, maybe beyond 10, 11, you know, it's really brutal disease. So you could imagine a gene therapy approach kind of get rid, just put, put back in the functional enzyme and get rid of the DNA. There's other approaches. So in my lab, we we've been working on, you know, the pathway that responds to the DNA in, in that disease. And we've actually just recently found some new inhibitors that, that block a protein called sting. And then that protein, by blocking that response, you're kind of block, even though the DNA could be activating the pathway, you're blocking the response and the consequences. So, so that's a promising approach. Um, and we actually just founded a company to kind of begin to develop that and, you know, see if we can turn those initial compounds into, into a real drug, hopefully that, you know, could, could help patients with that disease and related diseases. It's interesting because as you just spoke about staying there, so in my kind of preparation for, for this podcast, I watched um, your talk for, I think it was the Global Immuno Talks from last year. And yeah. it, what struck me was that, you know, sting comes up quite a lot. But at the start, you're kind of discussing kind of sting agonists and how, how like triggering sting can help in antiviral immunity yeah. and also tumor, like anti, anti-tumor yeah. immunity. Anti-tumor and immunity. Near the, the latter end of your talk, then you're speaking about, about the kind of auto-inflammatory and autoimmune and how a sting antagonists so blocking stings exactly yeah. what you're speaking yeah. there yeah yeah um can can help that so it is that delicate balance and the kind of flipped both two sides of the one coin Sorry. yeah no i have a, so so i think sting in particular is a great example of just a protein and a component of the innate immune system where by understanding it right you can take advantage of properties so so as you you know as you mentioned if you activate the sting pathway it's really fantastic at in antiviral immunity. And in fact, we just had a paper just accepted yesterday where we actually used an agonist of sting to elicit antiviral immunity and actually block SARS-CoV-2 replication. So we did kind of a pretty extensive study where we basically tested, you know, if you used a sting agonist, could you block SARS-CoV-2 replication? And, you know, we did that in cells and in various kind of cell culture models, but we, we also at UMass said, up the animal model. So there's a mouse model of um, SARS-CoV-2 where you can, you know, infect mice. It's a transgenic. You have to express the human ACE2 receptor, which everybody is probably familiar with. So when mice express the human ACE2 receptor in the lung, you can actually infect those mice with coronavirus. And it was remarkable if we administer a sting agonist, you know, before that infection or even after the infection, we could completely protect those mice from that infection. So, you know, that's an example where you turn on the sting pathway and it's beneficial for antiviral immunity. And then people are taking advantage of small molecules that activate sting for anti-tumor immunity because this whole idea that if you sort of wake up the two, the tumor microenvironment and kind of make it filled with immune cells and you activate T cells, you can kind of boost the ability of the immune system to kill those tumor cells and, you know, particularly sting agonists in combination with checkpoint inhibitors, which are, you know, these inhibitors that sort of take the brakes off of our, our pathways that take the brakes off of T cells. You kind of relieve that inhibition and then now you 
make the T cells active and they can kill tumor cells. So, so I think the sting path is super exciting from a therapeutic perspective, you, you know, lots of interest in activating it. And then, as I mentioned earlier, our major interest has been in kind of blocking it because it's, it's driving really dangerous, you know, nasty tissue damaging responses in these diseases. And would there would there be a case where if you activated the sting pathway for to to promote antiviral immunity or or maybe anti tumor immunity that you could then get a side effect of an autoimmune disease or an or an anti inflammatory disease because you're ramping up the immune system? Yeah, I mean that's a really good question. So there actually there is an auto inflammatory disease called SAVI that which we also study in my lab. It's a disease caused by a mutation in sting itself. So when sting is active so in the children or you know we've made mice that have that disease in in either case that the cells are sort of activated constitutively they're firing on all cylinders producing these type 1 interferons and other responses so if sting is on all the time it's really bad it's going to drive an autoimmune disease but these molecules that are sort of antiviral or anti-tumor agonists you know they're potent but they're really short-lived so they they act kind of quick and fast they turn on these antiviral responses but then the responses kind of are, you know they're transient so they mm. turn on they typically peak within less than 24 hours and you know 24 hours later everything is back to normal so it's a real sort of acute response mm. that's enough to kind of halt viruses in their tracks, you know, turn on antiviral immunity, but it's not giving this kind of prolonged constitutive sting response. So that that would be a really bad thing. But with drugs, you with the pharmacology, right, you can alter how um, long acting or short acting they are and kind of, you know, take advantage of the pathway, but but not end up with the dangerous side effects of overactivation. I, I was I was going to ask you about about Savvy. So I had never heard of that disorder. Is it a, yep. a very rare disease? Yeah. So Savvy is again one. Yeah, it's a rare disease. It was only discovered, you know, a couple of years ago. So Sting had been discovered, you know, known to be a driver of these interferon pathways. And then there was a number of groups around the world that were studying patients who have, um, you know, high levels of interferons. And basically, as they started to sequence the genomes of those children to look for mutations, you know, they found mutations in the sting protein itself. So so there's probably about 100 patients in the world so far that have been diagnosed with SAVI. So, you know, relatively rare. Similarly, the Icardi Goudier syndrome disease I mentioned earlier, that's also rare, you know, may, maybe a thousand, a couple of thousand patients in the world. So small numbers, um, but there's, there's kind of a growing group of these types of diseases where, you know, the patients, usually children, because these are early onset diseases, you know, their cells are kind of producing cytokines at high levels. And, you know, that manifests as, you know, kind of autoinflammation. In the case of savvy, the children get vasculitis, so kind of inflammation of the blood vessels. They end up with this really awful what we call interstitial lung disease. So they get kind of a vibratic lung, lots of inflammation in the lung and, you know, depth 
deposition of collagen and the lung kind of becomes stiff. They're not able to breathe properly. And, you know, eventually these children, you know, succumb to kind of respiratory failure. So basically they're just not able to, you know, breathe. And I think they live till, you know, maybe sort of early teenage years, even, even younger. So terrible diseases. And then what we've done is we've used CRISPR to introduce those mutations into the mouse. And fortunately, when you do that, we actually recreated kind of the, you know, features of the human disease in the mouse. So what's cool about that is there's now kind of a mouse model Mm. where we can begin to understand, you know, how does that disease start? You know, what it, what's going wrong in those patients? The mice actually die of respiratory failure. They get fibrosis. So, you know, it serves now as a model to kind of begin to understand the disease. And then, you know, of interest to my lab, because we're interested in developing these drugs that block these pathways, you know, can we test these drugs in that mouse model and you know, if they're effective there, you know, that helps kind of build a case that they could be useful potentially in patients. Yeah, it's, um, I suppose what strikes me and, and what has, like throughout this podcast, when I speak to people who are in immunology research is the, just the myriad of diseases and disorders that studying the immune system affects. Because, you yeah. you know, on the one hand, like I was saying, you, you've got your, um, you're studying your viruses, you can have tumor biology in there, but then also on the other hand, you've got these autoimmune, autoinflammatory. So it really yeah. is. And I think, like we were speaking about earlier, like, uh, COVID especially has really highlighted the importance of understanding immunology and our immune system more. Oh, very much so. I think, you know, I think the immune system and, you know, inflammation probably contributes to, you know, most, if not all diseases in some way, right? There's, I remember a couple of years ago, there was a big article on the front cover of science that sort of suggested that, you know, macrophages and inflammation is involved in, diseases that we never even would have thought of as inflammatory diseases, you know, neurodegeneration, cancer, cardiovascular disease. But but basically, the immune system is so tightly regulated and, you know, it, the ability to kind of turn that on or overactivated in so many different conditions. I think if it's not a driver of many of these diseases, it's it's definitely a consequence. So I think, you know, it opens up the possibility that if you target the immune system, you might improve, you know, many more diseases than we might have initially thought of. Yeah, no, I completely, completely agree. And, and I suppose kind of coming into, you know, the, the latter part of our conversation. I really want to talk about your opinion on academia as a whole. So I suppose, yeah. firstly, what do you love about what you do and, and why do you, I suppose, what drives you to get up in the morning and, and go into the lab and, and discover new things? Yeah, I, so, you know, I think academia, just the, so the freedom, that's what I like about being an academic as opposed to, let's say, doing, you know, working in a company to, you know, to pursue immunology. Um, I just, so I love interacting with students and, you know, training students to, you know, become independent scientists. You know, I love the fact as an academic, you know, you get to travel around the world, go to conferences, you know, meet really interesting people who are doing really interesting things um i think it's just it's just the freedom yeah i mean i personally am motivated by you know the 
the diseases, you know, in, in my own lab, my lab manager has an autoimmune disease, you know, and I see how debilitating that is for her. So, you know, just on a practical day to day level, right, you're sort of driven to it sounds a bit cheesy to find a cure, but, you know, to understand a disease that impacts the people around you. Right. So so that's definitely one driver. But, yeah, I just the kind of quest to figure out new things. You know, you're always doing something new. As an academic, you're, you know, you get to pursue the things you're interested in. You know, not every day am I, you know, jumping out of bed to fly to, <laughs> fly to work. I mean, there's just like with any job, there's a lot of tedious things, a lot of administrative annoyances. But um, but ultimately, just, you know, I yeah, I guess I love what I do and I, I like to figure out how things work. And then hopefully turn that into a treatment. I mean, that would be the ultimate goal. Yep. Yeah, because I, I do ch- tend to ask people, you know, what, what frustrates you the most or what stresses you the most about um, your job as well. So you're, you know, when you're an academic, particularly in the U.S. system, right, you're very much dependent on grants. So there's a lot of pressure to keep, you know, getting grants because the grants support your salary that, you know, it's, a, it's different to how it is, let's say, in an Irish university where you're paid by the university, right? Like my salary is is dependent in part, not fully, but in part on bringing in grant support. So there's pressure, you know, you have to be performing, you have to be publishing papers to get those grants. I think the more tedious things are sort of administrative stuff. I mean, I like some of that. So I'm vice chair of the Department of Medicine at UMass. So I kind of try and help steer the research across the department, you know, training and mentoring people. Like I I really enjoy that aspect of things. And then my own students and postdocs, like seeing them, you know, turn into independent scientists, you know, get jobs, start their own labs, you know, that's just probably the most rewarding. I mean, it's rewarding to publish papers and all of that, but I think the your ability to kind of train people and see them go off and start their own labs and make their own discoveries is I think definitely the biggest kind of buzz you get from from this career. And do you think, you know, given your 20 years in in, um, Massachusetts, do you think you will ever return to to Ireland or do you think the US has, you know? Yeah, it's it's hard once you've been someplace for a certain amount of time, like the draw of the you know us and science but uh, yeah i mean there's mad there's many reasons it would be really nice to be back in ireland we did kind of think about it a few years ago and in the end you know just decided not to make the move i think at this stage it's probably hard to imagine you know yeah i'd like a sabbatical maybe you know a year or so back in trinity would be would be great but yeah it's it's probably unlikely that at this stage well, people will just have to go out and visit you. <laughs> come visit me. Yes, absolutely. We all, you know, we always have a lot of Trinity students that you know come for the summer. I've had lots of um, you know students and postdocs, particularly you know Susan Carpenter. At the moment, I have an Irish scientist, Fiacra Humphreys, who's in my lab, who's just been incredibly successful. And um, yeah, so we always have to have a, a bit of Irish in the lab for sure. <laughs> And I suppose.
suppose, Kate, you know, one of my, my last question for you is if, if you weren't a scientist and if you weren't in the career you are in today, where do you think your life would have ended up um, or what career do you think you might have had? Cannot even imagine not doing what I do now. Yeah. I don't know, you know, maybe in medicine, but um, I still think I would have ended up in somehow in research. It's, it's yeah, I, you know, I think I don't have any regrets. Like I think back to, you know, that career guidance teacher saying, oh, now you'd want to be careful. What if you don't like science? But, you know, for me, that was the best decision ever, you know. Yeah, I, um, I definitely like what I do. I can't imagine doing anything else. Well, it's worked out extremely well so far. So I yeah, think so your <laughs> your career guidance teacher was definitely wrong in that sense. <laughs> well, I think she I think she just was worried I was, you know, just the risk that it, that I didn't love it, right? But yeah. No, she she knew science was for me. I think she was just trying to balance me out a bit, which might have been a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, it has been so lovely to chat to you today. And as I said, congratulations again. And thank you so much for giving me your time because I know you were extremely busy. Um, and I'm so thankful we did manage to find the time to chat today. Yeah, no, thank you very much. Um, it was really nice to chat with you and I'm uh, more than happy to do it. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, who are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts.